here we go again with another episode of Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. Welcome back to the show. If you are joining me for the first time, welcome, welcome, welcome. Today is a cold winter day in January when I record this episode. And January is one of those strange months of the year where we're kind of coming out of the slumber of the holiday season. Everybody is hustling, bustling with family and whatnot and all of the craziness that go along with the holidays and the stress. And and then you're coming out of this slumber period the first couple weeks of January and you're facing some cold winter, especially when you're in the north up here like Michigan is. And uh, everybody's also doing a lot of planning for the year. I have been in so many different meetings and discussions in the last week alone with planning for different groups that I'm involved in. So it's just kind of a strange time of year. But it's also kind of odd to think that it's just a changeover of a a normal month, really, if you look at it. Um, But it's a new year, so yeah, there's all kinds of new things planning out. But being that it is a cold winter day when I'm recording this, I thought I would venture on over to another community that I've been longing to do an episode on. And it's kind of fitting with its title today because there's snow outside. But uh, it would be the Village of White Pigeon. This is a very interesting village community that has had a very long history and a very important role in the founding and establishing of Southwest Michigan, and this includes all counties in Southwest Michigan. So I'm going to go into some of that history. We're going to talk about the founding of the village, how the village got its name, as well as the important role that it played in Southwest Michigan's history. And so we're going to venture on down to White Pigeon today in the county of St. Joseph. So come along and join me. So who the first settlers of White Pigeon is probably quite debatable, and I don't think anybody really knows. Uh, Basing today's history dive on an article that was written by Denise Frederick in 1997 to 1998, and she took time to write a series of histories on all of the different villages in St. Joseph County. And um, I based another episode earlier on on Three Rivers from some of her material. And I don't know much about her other than it's a pretty fascinating history. And I'll put the link to the information that she put on the internet in the show note descriptions. And I'm also using some other uh, online sources that I found about White Pigeon. And going on some other historical records that I found in my own travels through history. So... Who the first settlers were, we're not exactly sure, and she was not exactly sure in her research, but she does know that there were people living back in that area as early as 1826. Most of them were missionaries, and of course, Native Americans have long lived in that area. And the name of the community comes after a Native American chief whose name was translated into English was White Pigeon. Now, he was a Potawatomi chief, and the way they pronounced his name in Potawatomi was 
Wabeme, which is W-A-H-B-E-M-E-M-E. And I believe I'm pronouncing it correctly, but I'd have to defer to the experts on that. But he is buried in White Pigeon, and there's a memorial stone marking his grave. Now, his gravesite in White Pigeon is now part of the National Register of Historic Places, which is kind of interesting. Now, there's a legend surrounding Chief White Pigeon, and it was that he was at a gathering of chiefs in Detroit, and he heard of plans that were being made to attack the settlement, which is now White Pigeon, where he was from. And he was friends with a lot of the white settlers there, and he did not want to see them come to harm. So he set out on foot and ran almost 150 miles to the settlement to warn the people there. And after running that long distance and giving his warning, he collapsed and soon died from exhaustion. So that's the legend of White Pigeon, that he sacrificed himself by fording rivers and crossing swamps of 150 miles to warn his friends to prevent a massacre that had been declared at an Indian war council in Detroit of every settler along the St. Joseph River. And the village was ultimately named White Pigeon. And his laying down his life for the settlement is why the memory of White Pigeon is perpetuated in the village today. And White Pigeon was the third town in the state to be settled. And it was also known through the New England states before they'd ever heard about the small Fort Dearborn, which was over in Chicago. Uh, about 1,000 acres around White Pigeon was what they called oak openings, which were openings within the trees and clearings. And it was right along the Chicago Trail. So this was a settlement area early on by traders and trappers and places that uh, it became a stopping point that was well established. And it's significant that they were established earlier than 1831 because that was when the 1830 to 1831 was when the lower counties were surveyed. Uh, Governor Cass sent out all these surveyors into the wilderness to survey and plat out the counties, and then they made them available, and the land was made available to pioneers at a dollar and a quarter an acre. And so the, all of the counties had been surveyed. So you have different communities with their early settlers coming in, like, for example, Marshall, their earliest one settled in 1831. Uh, Sands McCamley came around that same time period, founded Battle Creek. And all of the different communities, Bronson followed in right around that time period in founding Kalamazoo and so forth. So you have all of these um, early settlers coming in during that time, but White Pigeon had been established well before that. So it's kind of an interesting early pioneer history for the village of White Pigeon because of where it was located and that it really predated a lot of the earlier counties. And that will be important as I tell the story a little bit later on here. Now, let me call your attention to a particular point. Now, White Pigeon in the area geographically place for settlement. And what I mean by settlement is it was a stopping point along the Chicago Trail. It was a popular place to set up camp because of the oak openings, the clearings, the prairie that was there. It made it a convenient level area to set up camp and 
take a rest for a day or two, and then continue on down the trail. And this was known by the Native Americans for many years, as well as any of the French travelers and traders that were going that way on the Chicago Trail. So when we refer to the early point of it being an early settlement, it doesn't mean that there were structures necessarily built there. A lot of them were encampments that were set up. The first log cabin was built much later on. But in essence, that is why White Pigeon was an ideal spot for stopping and it became a well-known point of settlement along the way. Now, during the early 1800s, before 1831, the land office was in Monroe, Michigan, and that was where you filed claims on land in Michigan. And John Winchell and Arba Held were prospecting in southern Michigan when they came upon the site which is today White Pigeon in 1826. And they immediately went to Monroe, Michigan and filed their land claims. Another man by the name of Leonard Cutler soon arrived after those two men. And this trio were the first settlers of White Pigeon. John Winchell was a native of the New England states, as was his wife. And he had nine children and he arrived with his whole family in the spring of 1827. And he became the first justice of the peace in the county, as well as the first postmaster of Millville, as the first post office was called. And he had the first contract for carrying the mail between Coldwater and Niles. And he was described as a man of unimpeachable character. He had a log cabin on the north side of the Chicago Trail and also a blacksmith's shop on the south side. And those were the first two buildings in the White Pigeon Settlement. Now, Leonard Cutler, which was one of the other three settlers, was a native of Vermont, and he and his wife both uh, went to Canada in 1811, but they returned to the United States, and he joined the War of 1812, and he served the country. When the War of 1812 ended, he moved to Jennings County, Indiana, and then he later moved to White Pigeon with his family in May of 1827. He had several children, and there's a story that says that he was stricken with the fever, whatever that was, while he was on the road to White Pigeon, and his boys were riding with him in the wagon. And his boys finally asked him, where he wished to be buried in case he did not recover and passed away from the illness, because I guess it was quite severe. And he informed them that he was on his way to White Pigeon, and he wished to be buried there if anything happened to him, regardless of where he died. But ultimately, he did not die. And he arrived in White Pigeon, and the Potawatomi Indians gave him some native herb medicine, and he was able to recover. And a little later, he in turn, did the same thing for a German by the name of Kimball and was rewarded by a loan sufficient to buy 800 acres of land on the prairie. So he received some goodwill from one of the Native Americans, and he in turn used that knowledge of the herb and helped another settler who was of German descent, and it was in turn rewarded with some uh, loan for some land, which is kind of a very interesting story. And Mr. Cutler left the community in 1831, and he sold his land for a good price. But Winchell and Cutler plowed and planted the first farms in the area, and they sowed corn, potatoes, and buckwheat. 
and sowing the wheat in the fall, and Cutler planted the first orchards that were in White Pigeon. Now, there was a doctor that moved into the area in 1827. His name was Dr. David Page, and he was the first physician in the entire county, and he came to the area with his brother Reed Page, and another man by the name of Joseph Olds, and they settled in the prairie in 1827, and both the doctor and his brother were unmarried men at the time. Another man by the name of Achelle Savory came to the prairie that same year, and Mr. Savory was the one that built the east wing of the famous Old Diggins Tavern, and it was the pioneer hotel built of logs, and it became a stopping place for many notables of the day. And it was in this building that the electors assembled and started the new government of the county of St. Joseph in the fall of 1829. And the first caucus was held in that tavern. And it was there that Elias Taylor was recommended to Governor Cass as the person most fit to serve on the court as the judge and also the sheriff's office. And John W. Anderson was also recommended for the register of probate and deeds. And then John Sturgis and William Meeks were nominated for county judges. And the first town meeting was held in that same old diggins tavern. In 1830, the owner added a fine frame structure to the original log building, which became the main part of the tavern. And here, it was the first county court that was convened in that tavern by the Honorable William Woodbridge and Henry Chipman presiding as judges. And Ashel Savory also owned the first stagecoach that was on the Chicago Road in 1831, and he drove it himself, and he built bridges to get through from Tecumseh all the way to Niles. So that's kind of an interesting history with him as well. In 1837, Reverend Charles Newberry established a branch of Michigan University in the Old Diggins Tavern until the completion of the building for that purpose in the area. And the building has since been removed, but the old foundation may still be seen just north of the White Star Filling Station on West Chicago Road. So that's an interesting bit of history from the White Pigeon area. The state appropriations for that Michigan of University building was finally suspended in 1846 and the branch closed. But it's interesting that Governor Bagley, who later was a governor of the state of Michigan, received his education at that branch of the University of Michigan there in White Pigeon. Also in 1831, five prominent men of the community incorporated the White Pigeon Academy, but that did not last very long, and the building was eventually used for the court as well as religious services, and then finally it became a stable. So the academy was a very short-lived endeavor. But the village map was platted in May of 1830 in the Old Diggins Tavern, building was the only building within the village at that time. And Robert Clark Jr. was the government surveyor that did the platting. Now, Clark actually lived in the area until his death, and he was buried in the local cemetery. Niles Smith was the first merchant, 
and Neil McGaffey became the first lawyer, and Neil's father was Otis McGaffey. The village grew fast following the merchant being established and the attorney arriving, and there was a lot of uh, names that showed up of different families following this that shows the prominent growth of the village, and that was the names of uh, Knapp and Beckwith and Newton and Luger and the Nags family who was an Indian trader, and Samuel Pratt, who built the first framed house, and Loomis, who became the first probate judge, and Reverend William Jones, the first Presbyterian minister. And then there was a Kellogg family of brothers. They became leading merchants. And then in 1831, Isaac Adams and his family arrived with John S. Berry, who afterwards became the governor of the state of Michigan. I've covered a whole episode on John S. Berry. He is the only governor that ever served three terms as governor, and a very fascinating history. And he came from White Pigeon. The first school that was built in White Pigeon was on the White Pigeon Prairie, and it's now extinct. It doesn't exist anymore, and it was called Newville, and it was the it was east of White Pigeon, and Albert Allen, who afterwards became the postmaster of both Newville and White Pigeon, was the first school teacher. The village of Newville was established by a pair of brothers named Phelps, and the first religious services um, were held there in Newville. But Newville, I guess, eventually got merged in with the White Pigeon Village. And Denise Frederick goes into listing a lot of the other names of the different settlers that were there. Uh, She also described that the village had several different businesses in the early days of its establishment. It had several blacksmith shops. There were three manufacturers of fanning mills. Now, when I say the manufacturer of fanning mills, a lot of people won't know what that is. It was a mechanical device that was invented where you would use it to turn a manual fan inside an enclosed chamber, which allowed you to separate the wheat and separate the the chaff from the grain itself. And the wind would would blow and it would uh, help them winnow the wheat. It had some grain separators in there as well. And so it was a a manual device and there were different types of fanning mills constructed during the 1800s. These were later replaced by threshing machines and grain separators that came along in the later 1800s. But a lot of these farmers used manual cranked fanning mills as a way of separating grain. Otherwise, before that, what they had to do is lay out the grain on a hot afternoon day and let the wind separate out the chaff from the grain. And that was a much longer process and also really dependent on weather, whereas the fanning mill could be used inside of a barn on a rainy day if you needed to. So it's kind of significant that White Pigeon was manufacturing fanning mills, and there were three different companies doing this in the area, which probably meant they were distributing these products along the Chicago Trail to other communities, maybe even as far as Chicago and Wisconsin. But some of the other businesses... There was a wagon shop, a shoemaker, jeweler, tailor, flour mill, and a sawmill. And it was the first sugar beet factory in Michigan that was located there. That has a very interesting history. I believe that's connected with Governor Barry as well. He investigated uh, sugar beets as a crop that could be grown in Michigan. And so it's not surprising that um, 
White Pigeon was one of the first areas to grow sugar beets because of his connection. And another interesting point is one of the early blacksmith shops was also a bell maker. So that's kind of a unique trade in itself. The old cemetery was laid out in 1830, and the burial of a child of one of the Clark brothers was the first grave in that cemetery. And then later, a child of Dr. Loomis was buried there. The first railroad was built by the Michigan Southern and South Shore Railroad. And later, a branch was run to Constantine and Three Rivers. And then the first road was the National Military Road, better known as the Old Chicago Trail, and is now the main street of the village of White Pigeon. So that main street in White Pigeon is a very, very old road in the state of Michigan. And because of its prominence in its early pioneer days, White Pigeon became a stopping point with a lot of famous people that were on their way to Chicago. And some of the nationally known people that stopped at the White Pigeon taverns included Daniel Webster, Governor Cass, Governor Bagley, and also Governor Barry. And over the many, many years, Native Americans quite frequently stopped and camped there in the White Pigeon area and the White Pigeon Prairie when they were on their way to Chicago or Detroit. And many were going through that area to collect their land payments. Now, initially, after the first counties were surveyed and the land was opened up to early pioneer settlers, between 1831, early part of 1831, the land office was originally in Monroe, Michigan. But in late 1831 and lasting through 1834, the land office was moved to the village of White Pigeon. And it became the White Pigeon Prairie Land Office. And it was the designated place in Michigan to go register land parcels in southwest Michigan. So this became a heavily trafficked area with anybody coming in to lay claims to plots of land in all of the 14 or 15 original platted counties in southwest Michigan. And as new counties were added, White Pigeon served that role until 1834. And the United States Land Office was located in downtown White Pigeon, and today it is the oldest surviving U.S. land office in the state of Michigan. The building is still there. It's now a museum, and you can go by and see it. I went there. I haven't been to White Pigeon in a long time. I went there during 2020. I had some work that took me over that way, and I stopped at the land office, and I, of course, Tried to go in, but it was closed. Um, I think everybody was closed during 2020. But uh, the I walked around. There's, um, I believe there's a small log cabin or structure in the back. Um, it's a neat old building. There's a big historic marker right out there in front. And uh, at some point, I, I want to go when they are open and do a tour uh, because it's a fascinating historical landmark for southwest Michigan. So this land office, you know, following the cessation of the Native Americans' lands in this area by leaders of the regional tribes, the U.S. government sold more than 250,000 acres of land in Michigan for a dollar and a quarter an acre to the 1830 settlers of this area of southwest Michigan and really all of western Michigan. Um, they just didn't plat the upper counties like Allegan and Ottawa and so forth initially, but those eventually became platted as um, the first wave of counties, which has been more or less the foundation of my podcast, uh, southwest Michigan. But the um, 
land office today is on the National Register of Historic Places. Now, just to give you an idea how small the village of White Pigeon is, today, as far as the 2010 census, it was 1,522 people. The 2020 census was 1,718 people. Going back to 1860 was when the first census of that area was taken, 959 people lived there. So it's never been a huge population in the village of White Pigeon. But during its time, it was a very significant location of destination travel because of the land office being there for at least the first four years between 1831 and 1834. And there are stories that um, stagecoach routes were gone through there. I have done episodes and research on the stagecoach route that ran through Battle Creek and across and up into Hastings. Well, there was another route that went from Battle Creek to Kalamazoo all the way down to White Pigeon. And today, the Michigan Southern Railroad still has one of its main yard complexes in the town of White Pigeon. And the Grand Elk Railroad is still west of the town. So the village has always had a railroad presence. Now let's talk about some of the notable people that have come from White Pigeon. Well, probably the most notable, which I already mentioned, was John S. Berry. He was the fourth governor of the state of Michigan, and he was also the eighth governor of the state of Michigan. And he was the only Michigan governor to serve three terms in the 19th century. And his main accomplishments were to rationalize state finances after the state's internal improvements fiasco that they ran out of money at one point. And uh, he was perhaps a considered a voice of reason in reestablishing the state finances during that time. Some of the other notable people, Oris Pratt, who was a member of the Wisconsin State Assembly. He was born in White Pigeon, and he served one term. He was born in Michigan, and he moved to Wisconsin as a child with his family. He followed his father into farming as well as politics. Scott Bales, whose real name is William Scott Bales, is a former Chief Justice of the Arizona Supreme Court, and he was appointed to the court in 2005 by the governor, and he was elected by his fellow Chief Justices as Chief Justice of of the Arizona Supreme Court, and he grew up in White Pigeon. Samuel Pratt was a farmer, and he was also a member of the Wisconsin State Assembly, as well as the Wisconsin State Senate. He was an early pioneer, and he served nine sessions in the Wisconsin Assembly between 1849 and 1874. And there's one lady on the list, Lainey Byler, who was a farmer, and she was a member of the Michigan Daily, which was a independent student newspaper of the University of Michigan, and it was nicknamed The Daily. And she was born and raised in White Pigeon, and she was inducted into the White Pigeon Hall of Fame in 2019. So White Pigeon has some fascinating history as it relates to Southwest Michigan, and it played a very important role with the land office for four years. And it's really great that they were able to preserve that building as a landmark, and it's got a nice big historic marker out there in front of the uh, old building, which is now a museum. So if you get a chance and you're down in that area, see if you can go by, and maybe you'll get lucky when at the, that the museum will be open and you can take a tour of that historic landmark. If not, just take some time to read the historic marker that's right out front. 
But I enjoy bringing you stories about the founding of different villages and places and towns and getting a little bit of early history. It is never by any stretch of the imagination the inclusive and all-consuming uh, complete story of any village. And I highly recommend that you always go and explore and get more information from the local historians that uh, live in those areas that run the different historical societies and museums. This podcast is really more about just telling you a little bit of the dynamic content of the area and the stories that are there, but also it's also to tantalize you to go and learn more about the different museums and history of your local areas. And White Pigeon has always been a very fascinating place to me. It's right close to the Indiana state line, and it just has a very interesting name. I mean, wouldn't it be cool to be living in a town called White Pigeon? I mean, that's just a unique name all by itself, and I think that is... Uh, um, it's always intrigued me to learn more about that village. So I'm glad I've taken some time today to share with you some of the history that I've learned about the village. And I hope that you will endeavor to learn more yourself about this and the other locations in southwest Michigan. But that's going to conclude today's journey through history, looking at the history of White Pigeon. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. And as always, please leave a rating or review on whatever app that you are listening on if you enjoyed today's episode. It always helps me to get new listeners out there. And as many of you are probably aware I have a book coming out this year. It is on Victorian Southwest Michigan True Crime. That is the title of the book, and there's a lot of stories that cover a lot of the different counties in Southwest Michigan, including one story in St. Joseph that is really compelling, uh, St. Joseph County, that is. Um, and if you'd like to pre-order the book, that is now available. So go to michaeldelaware.com and just look right in the center of the page. There is on that landing page a big button that says pre-order the book, and you can't miss it. Um, and that will uh, help me out a lot. If you pre-order, I can send you the book. I will send you a signed copy. And there's also a calendar on my website there that you can find the upcoming show dates where I will be speaking throughout March, April, and May. I've got a lot of bookings that have uh, come my way from uh, just making a few phone calls and having people reach out to me. And a lot of people want to have me come talk about the book as a, after the release date. So it's going to be an exciting uh, three months there between March, April, and May. And um, certainly there'll be a lot more going on in June and July as the, the year goes on. People are always going to have uh, authors come and speak about books. And a new book is always exciting. So I should be able to get a lot more speaking engagements. And of course, at all those engagements, there will be opportunities to buy my book and I will sign it for you as well. So if you'd like to uh, support the work that I'm doing, that's one way you can do it. Uh, if you want to support me early on, go ahead and pre-order the book today at michaeldelaware.com. And be sure to follow me on social media. You can find me on Facebook as well as Instagram. Instagram, it is Michigan History Guy. And uh, on Facebook, it is Michael Delaware Author. And so look it up. Uh, follow me there as well. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and we explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening. Thank you.